My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Irene Lanzinger. It has been a long time since a good job with a good wage for everyone who wants one was a default mainstream public policy goal. Under the camouflage of euphemisms like labor market flexibility, the consistent direction under governments of all mainstream political stripes in all corners of the developed world has for many years now been away from full employment as a goal and towards policies that mean more and more of the jobs that do exist are not good ones. These kinds of changes, which have meant that an increasing proportion of the work that makes our society function happens under low-wage and precarious conditions, are part of the neoliberal shift that has increased inequality, enriched the rich, and further impoverished working people over the last three decades or so. Yet however tight the grip of neoliberal thinking on elites in North America, including many of those who dress in progressive garb, the idea that working a full-time job should be enough to assure that you don't live in poverty still has broad resonance among ordinary people. This is the basis for the rapid spread of the Fight for 15 as a slogan and as a set of parallel on-the-ground campaigns. From its beginning among workers in the fast food sector in parts of the United States, these efforts to lift the minimum wage to $15 an hour have spread far and wide. Not only that, they've been winning victories, from partial gains, like a very modest increase in the federal minimum wage in the United States, to full achievement of the $15 an hour goal in cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle. The form that the fight for 15 has taken varies from place to place. In British Columbia, that province's Federation of Labor, plus a coalition of allied organizations in the community, have taken on a central role in the fight to raise the minimum wage there from $10.25 to $15. Irene Lanzinger is the president of the BC Federation of Labor. She talks with me about the need to raise the minimum wage, the details of the campaign in BC, the reasons why unions, most of whose members make more than that anyway, see this as an important goal, and why scaremongering arguments against the increase coming from the business lobby just don't add up. We spoke by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My name is Irene Lanzinger. I'm the president of the BC Federation of Labor. I was elected last November, so I'm early in my first term as president. I came from the teachers' union. I was active in that union as a chief negotiator, as a local president, and eventually as the president of the BCTF. We launched the Fight for 15 campaign in November at our convention. And we did it because at that time it had been about 30 months since there was a raise in the minimum wage. Our minimum wage in BC is currently 10.25 an hour, and we feel and have always had a tradition really in the BC Federation of Labor as seeing ourselves as representing our affiliates first, for sure, and that's about 500,000 people in British Columbia, 
but also seeing ourselves as speaking for the broader labor movement and for all workers in BC. So on things like health and safety issues, on temporary foreign workers, and on employment standards, including minimum wage, we've been very active in advocating for better rights protection, better rules, better wages, better benefits for all workers. And so our minimum wage campaign, I think, is part of that view of ourselves as unions and a labor movement as a vehicle for social justice in the world. A worker in BC who earns the minimum wage earns about $6,000 below the poverty line. So this is really an issue of saying, if you work in this province, you deserve to live above the poverty line. That's been our strongest message on the campaign. People who work shouldn't live in poverty. There's about 110,500 workers who earn the minimum wage in BC. We're looking for a $15 minimum wage, and there's half a million people, 500,000 people, who work for wages less than $15 an hour. There is a majority women who earn minimum wage. Women are overrepresented in low-wage work, so about 60% of low-wage earners are women. Most are over 20 years of age, so they are not teenagers, 82% over 20. 69% work for employers with more than 20 employees. We often hear references to small business, but something like 50% work for companies that have more than 200 employees. So the vast majority of minimum wage workers do not work in small businesses. They work for larger employers who pay the minimum wage. We often hear from the government when we talk about this issue of poverty and people living in poverty that these are students living at home with their parents earning minimum wage. But 68% of minimum wage earners live on their own and try to pay rent in a very expensive province on a salary that's well below the poverty line. And we also find that minimum wage earners, a number of them, have fairly strong educational backgrounds. More than half, for example, have some post-secondary education. So, you know, I've met low-wage workers all over the province, and their moms, their dads, their single parents, they are some of them young people, but they deserve a decent wage too. And 10,000 workers earning minimum wage in BC are over the age of 55. When you live on poverty wages, and these are the stories that we've heard from people who have come to our events, who've spoken at our rallies, who I've actually visited on a union picket line, workers who earn just below $12 an hour, $13 an hour. This is at a recycling plant in Kamloops, so I talked to a number of low-wage workers there. One, a dad with a son who goes to the food bank regularly. These are people who cannot afford the things that their children should have. They have to scrimp on clothing and food for their children because they don't have enough salary. We also see the impact of poverty is that parents and children are transient. They have to move frequently from one place to another because they don't have enough money for the rent. They get evicted. They have to move somewhere else where the rent is lower. And all of those kinds of experiences for adults and children have a long-term impact in our society and a long-term cost. So, of course, people who live in poverty have worse health outcomes, they have worse educational outcomes than the general population. 
They use social assistance programs more frequently, of course. That's what social assistance programs are for. But all of that to say that there is also an economic argument for raising the minimum wage. We should raise the minimum wage because it's only fair that people who work full-time live above the poverty line. But it also is sound economically to raise the minimum wage. Because if you take the long view, you have better health outcomes, better educational outcomes, fewer people on social assistance, fewer people who fall through the cracks. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could eliminate food banks and everybody had enough money to buy food for their children? So if you take someone who makes 10, 25, or 11, or 12 dollars an hour and you give them 15 dollars an hour, or heaven forbid the living wage, which in Vancouver is 20.68 an hour, that person with higher wages then has the money to buy better food for their kids, to enroll their kids in a sport once in a while. And those things are both good for the community and good for the economy, and most importantly, good for the parent and the child. So the stories that we hear from workers are about how difficult it is to provide what families need on poverty wages. And we would all benefit from everyone living above the poverty line. One of the nice things about the Fight for 15 campaign is that particularly at certain times when we've timed our events with events in the United States, we've felt part of a larger North American and even global movement for better wages. So my understanding is that the Fight for 15 campaign, and I don't know a huge amount about it, though I have been to several conferences and events in the United States, it came out of the desire to raise wages and benefits and working conditions for fast food workers in the United States. And the campaign has been to some degree supported by the union movement. SEIU in particular has supported the Fight for 15 campaign. And it has spread across the United States with people taking actions at fast food restaurants, walking off the job. The campaign in the United States is a very good one. It's very active, and we hear about it all the time, and we feel part of it in our Fight for 15 here. There are some real signs in the United States of the success of that campaign. There is a spreading and growing number of cities in the United States who have committed to paying $15 an hour. They include SeaTac, which is already at 15 Seattle, which is phasing in a plan based on the size of businesses and type of businesses. I think they get fully to 15 by 2019, but many businesses will be coming on board soon, getting close to 15. San Francisco, L.A., and we're now expected some other cities will come on board as well. So it does feel that we're part of a larger movement in our Fight for 15 campaign. Tell me about the conversations in B.C. that led up to the decision to adopt the campaign. They happened here at the Federation of Labor for sure. We had a campaign for $10 an hour, and it took us a long time to get our government to commit to that, and then nothing happened. Because we hadn't had a raise for so long, they went to 1025, then there was no raise. When we were in the lead up to the campaign, we had been talking about renewing a campaign for a higher minimum wage. We had lobbied for raising the minimum wage at various times over the last few years to $13 an hour, and we had some preliminary steps in there. But when we talked about it this year, we talked with our Young Workers Committee, 
and they felt very strongly that it should be 15. There were two reasons for that. One was that the $15 an hour takes you above the poverty line. Not much, but it does take you above the poverty line. And we think that people who work full-time should be above the poverty line. The second reason really was that it matches up with the campaign in the United States. And it's 2015, so we made the argument, fight for 15 in 2015. That's how we came to the 15 and how we took that to our convention in November. We have a very good relationship and coalition with a number of progressive think tanks, anti-poverty groups, housing initiatives, Raise the Rates, which is an anti-poverty group that advocates for raising welfare rates and for more social housing. So we have quite a strong coalition of people who support the campaign. ACORN, for example, has been very active in our campaign, and they provide us with volunteers, and we've had rallies with them, and we've had a number of events with them. So we have established quite a broad coalition of community groups and affiliates of the BC Fed in this campaign. So it's not just the labor movement. It's a broader movement of people who are interested in doing something about the very high rates of poverty in this province. Tell me about the shape that the campaign has taken on the ground since it was approved at your convention last November. What we've done is we have an event every 15th of the month. And that has varied from leafleting at SkyTrain stations, going to low-wage employers like McDonald's and Walmart and leafleting in front of those stores, doing what we call a Burma shave where we stand on the street with signs and people who are driving by in a busy intersection, they see our signs and they honk. It's a well-known campaign around the province. We've had rallies out in front of the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which opposes a raise to the minimum wage. We've lobbied the Minister of Education and the Premier and MLAs of all parties on the issue. So we've had a number of activities like that. We've produced quite a few materials, uh, fact sheets and buttons and banners and the cards you can hold up for our rallies. So we've had that kind of active campaign. And I have to say it's a very popular campaign. When you talk to people on the street about this issue, the vast majority of them agree with the statement that someone who works full-time should not live in poverty. Really, no one should live in poverty. Even if you work part-time, you shouldn't live in poverty. But, you know, people working 35 hours a week, they should live above the poverty line. And 80% of British Columbians agree with that. We've also polled on the minimum wage, and there is a lot of public support for a $15 minimum wage. We also have a petition, both online, so if people want to go to the BC Fed website, www.bcfed.ca, you can sign up on the petition, and we've collected paper petitions as well, and we have tens of thousands of signatures on these petitions. In building these events and actions, how do you connect with low-wage workers, particularly given that I'd imagine most of the members of your affiliates are not themselves low-wage workers? Yeah, there aren't, but we do have affiliates who either have some low-wage workers. There is a percentage of unionized population that works below $15 an hour. So we do have some unionized restaurants and hotels 
and the cleaning staff in those hotels sometimes earn below $15 an hour. We had this recycling plant in Kamloops. Their wages actually go up to 18 but the majority of their workers are below 15 We have some healthcare workers, actually, who work in cleaning in hospitals who are below $15 an hour. But those communities of workers also know other workers. So both through our Young Workers Committee and through our community, actually the best source of contact with low-wage workers have been the community groups in the coalition I talked about. So we have the few that work in unions, but we also have been working with ACORN, which is a group that advocates for people who live in poverty and in difficult circumstances, and they've put us in touch with low-wage workers, brought people to speak at our rallies, and raised the rates, and other anti-poverty groups. They work in the low-wage worker communities all the time, and so they've been a good source for us of connecting with low-wage workers and trying to get them engaged in our campaign. You said that you've been getting good responses to the campaign from the public. What's the media response been like? I have to say that one of the things that has surprised me most is the media interest in the story. Every time we have a rally or an event or put something out, we get media interest. Sometimes it's just a few radio or TV stations, but we certainly have had all the media out or most of the media out on a number of occasions. And they don't seem to be getting tired of the campaign. I thought that the media would lose interest and say, oh, yeah, we've done a story on that. But there always seems to be some new angle on it. So, for example, one of our tiny, tiny successes was that the government recognized the strength of our campaign early on. So after the campaign was about three or four months old, the Minister of Labor announced that there would be a raise in the minimum wage in September. The only problem with that announcement was that it was only 20 cents an hour. So it was so pathetic compared to where we are compared to poverty. And we described it as pathetic, but there was a lot of media attention, of course, to her announcement. Now, she did also announce, the Minister Bond, that it would be tied to inflation starting next year. And there's debate about how best to have regular increases to the minimum wage. I think it should be tied to a point above the poverty line so you can guarantee that people who are working aren't living in poverty, but indexing it to inflation is one way to do it, and that's not a bad idea, except it has to be above the poverty line before you index it to inflation, because if it isn't above the poverty line, then you're just saying people are going to live in poverty forever because you're indexing poverty, essentially. So that was the success of the campaign early on that the government responded. So, yeah, there seems to be media interest quite regularly in the minimum wage campaign. Has the campaign organized events and actions in smaller communities in the province as well? What we have encouraged is we've encouraged groups in other cities to take up the campaign. There is a very active group in Victoria. I mean, we have actually not gone and organized in Victoria. We just sort of opened the door in Victoria and people walked in to the door and said, yes, we love the campaign, we want to run it. And what we say here is if you want a campaign, we'll send you stuff, we'll send you materials. We get requests from small towns around the province and we take on the cost of sending stuff. 
We send them whatever we have, depending on what we run out of and what we reorder and how we change our material slightly over time. But we've had buttons, T-shirts, those small little posters that you can hold up at rallies or put in your window. We have fact sheets, which I think are very important because it educates the public, but it also makes people who support the campaign comfortable talking about how many people live at minimum wage. And, you know, they have good responses to counter the argument that these are all kids living at home and they're all young people. When you send out the fact sheets, people see that that's not the case. We have little window stickers and things like that, too, you know, regular campaign materials. And we'll actually send a table officer of the Fed out to speak at an event if that's requested. And we'll send our materials to anybody who asks for them. We go to booths for, you know, festivals and things like that. We haven't gone too far afield in terms of major events. But we do have some cities taking up the campaign with their own labor councils or community groups in other cities. How would you respond to the claim made by the CFIB and other employer associations that if you push wages up in low-wage jobs, then there will end up being fewer jobs to go around? That's just not true. That's how I respond. It's a red herring. And I'll tell you why it's a red herring. It presumes that people are employing workers they don't need. So if you have 20 people at your company and you're producing something and you're making a profit on whatever you're producing, why if the wages go up do you just suddenly need 15 people? You still need those 20 people to do the work that they were doing before. If you only have 15 people, you're going to produce less, you're going to sell less, you're going to have less profit. That's not going to help. So that makes no sense. And in fact, Jim Stanford... Uh, and uh, Jim Stanford is the chief economist at Unifor, which is Canada's largest private sector union. Jim Stanford just produced a paper which argues exactly that. It does not have a negative impact on employment numbers. When the minimum wage went up from $8 to $10.25 an hour in BC, employment numbers went up. More people were employed, not fewer. If that argument was correct, we would never raise the minimum wage. I say that argument makes no sense. There's no economic basis, no data to support that argument. The one economic argument that does make some sense is that prices might go up. If you have to pay your employees more, you may have to charge more. But my response to that is, yes, you may. But that extra cost gets spread over a whole bunch of people who are buying something or using a service. So it's a very small increase normally, if any at all. And we should all be willing to pay more so that the workers who serve us or produce what we're buying don't live in poverty. I just think we should all be willing to pay a bit more if that's what it takes. And if we earn more, we can afford to pay a bit more. There is a bit of evidence to show that if you raise wages, new people come into the labor market that weren't there before. So, for example, someone might decide that they will work at $15 an hour and take that job, and they would not have taken that job if it was $10.50 an hour or $11 an hour. So who is employed in jobs changes, but just a very small amount. That is a relatively small impact. And it doesn't change the number of jobs. 
So less qualified, younger workers may see a small impact on their employment because their jobs are taken by more qualified, more experienced workers who come into the market because the wages are higher and it's worth them to, you know, go back to work or whatever. You touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but tell me more about why you think it's important for unions to be at the forefront of this struggle even though the majority of the workers who would benefit from this change are not union members? I think that has to do with the fundamental reason we form unions and become active in them and lead them and want to keep them strong. We form unions because we want workers to do better. We want them to have better wages and benefits. And we think that in a union, we can make those gains because we use our collective strength as workers. We say we're stronger together. If I individually go and argue for a wage increase, I don't carry a lot of weight. But if we all stick together and we say we're going to bargain together and if we don't get a good raise, we're going to take some action together, that's how we make gains for workers. That's true if you're a union worker or a non-union worker. And as unions, we have to be there for all workers. Union wages are higher than non-union wages, on average, quite a bit sometimes. So we have a responsibility to share that benefit that we get from belonging to a union with non-union workers. I see the work of unions as fundamentally a social justice endeavor about making the world a more equal place, making sure people's rights are protected, and in a broader sense, advocating for that generally in society, a more equal distribution of wealth, a decent poverty reduction program, child care so that everybody can go to work and know their kids are in a safe place if they choose to, fairer taxation, good public services. We fight for all of those things because they're good for our members, but they're good for our communities and our province. That's my view of the labor movement, and that's my view of my job as a labor leader and certainly as leader of the Fed. And I have to say that one of the things that really makes me love the labor movement is that our affiliates agree. Some of them are more engaged in the campaign than others. Some really take it up because it fits with their culture as a union. They also have very different levels of engagement in that broader social justice work. But every one of our affiliates supports this campaign. And I think that's a wonderful thing, too. You have been listening to my interview with Irene Lanzinger, the president of the British Columbia Federation of Labor, about the BC version of the Fight for 15 campaign to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. To find out more about the campaign, go to fightfor15bc.ca. That's all one word, fight for numeral one, numeral five, bc.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.